Hello and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. I am a medical oncologist and I specialize in treating women with breast and gynecologic cancers. I started this podcast to share the journeys and experiences of women who are living with cancer. The information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice as each woman has a different treatment and experience. It is meant to create a dialogue. Any personal medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Cancer brings normal life to a halt. It creates an interlude. Let's talk about it. Today, my guest is Kate Crawford. Kate was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2013. She is 35 years old currently. She is a mother to three children, including 10-year-old twin girls and a special needs son who is nine. She was diagnosed at the age of 28 and was later found to have Lee-Fromeni syndrome. She has been living with stage four breast cancer since that time, and today she joins me to share her story and her experience. Welcome, Kate. I'm really excited to have you on today. Thanks for inviting me. So do you want to start just by telling guests, you know, your story, how you were diagnosed? Yeah. Um, I was 28 years old and had just had one of my friends who had just turned 40. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. She lives in Australia. And she was kind of just telling all of us, you know, that um, we needed to check our breasts. That happens to young women. And I never for one second thought that if I would check that and I would find anything at all. So um, I had did a self breast examination and my breast just felt really unusual. So I had contacted um, my doctor and he did a breast exam and was like, yeah, I just don't like the way that this feels. Um, We need to go ahead and have it checked out. So I went ahead and I had an ultrasound, which led to a mammogram, which led to another ultrasound and then a biopsy. And um, they had called me back within a couple days of after having my biopsy. And they had told me that I had HER2 positive breast cancer. Um, At the time, they had thought maybe I was about a stage two. Um, And they went ahead and connected me with the breast surgeon. And when I went to go see her, she had asked, um, like, if I was having any other symptoms. And I had been having a lot of other symptoms, but I didn't think that they were cancer-related. And my husband was the one who kind of spoke up because I was like, oh, no, I'm fine. There's nothing else going on. And my husband's like, no, she's had this cough. Her back hurts real bad. She's been having stomach issues. He found out that I actually was already stage four and the cancer had spread to both my breast and my liver. And it was completely covering all through my bones. What was your reaction? How did you process all of that? It was really hard because I had already done a lot of research because I think a part of me knew that I was going to get diagnosed with breast cancer. Like I had known that it just wasn't good that I was in the position that I was in. Um, so I had already known how bad, um, metastatic breast cancer was and what the prognosis was. And at the time I had twin girls that were four and my son had just turned three and, all I could really think about was being around long enough to do things with them and see them grow up. And what happened after you were told about that diagnosis? What was the treatment plan? I started chemotherapy first. That was the first thing that I did. And I had a really bad reaction to my first round of chemo. So we had to kind of switch things up. 
And at that time that, I mean, this was six years ago. So Herceptin and Progetta together was like a relatively newer thing. And they didn't really know much about Progetta with Herceptin yet. Um, so I had to drop Progetta because they thought that maybe I was having an allergic reaction to that. And I started on a Braxane. And I did a Braxane and Herceptin for an entire year every single week. That's a lot of treatment. Yeah. <laughs> and what was the treatment like? Did you have side effects? How did it affect your ability to be a mom? I feel like a Braxane was a little bit more cumulative. So the longer I was on it, the worse the side effects became. My hair actually grew back um, on a Braxane. And then about 10 months into it is when my hair started to fall back out again. And that's kind of when I got, I started to not feel good, like the normal kind of chemo things. Um, and I've been on Herceptin now for about six years. And it's kind of the same thing. Like sometimes I do really well with it. And then there's just some treatment weeks where I'm just so nauseated and so tired and so sick that I feel like I can't even function. Do you work or are you at home with the kids? I am at home with the kids. I actually wasn't working whenever I was diagnosed because my son was born eight weeks premature. Okay. And he had cerebral palsy. He had had a couple strokes, just had a lot of health issues. So I was actually home with him and taking him to therapy um, two times a day throughout the week. And when you started treatment, were you able to do all of that or did you need help? I couldn't. Actually, um, it was probably one of the most frustrating things to deal with. I actually felt like I had to choose between him and myself you know, because I couldn't get him to therapy all that often. And even when I tried to scale it back, I still wasn't getting him there um, as often as he needed to be there. Like the, the, the therapist would say, well, he's not progressing because you're not getting him here. And as a mom, it's kind of like one of the worst things to hear because they're basically telling you your child is failing because of something that you're not doing. So it was really tough getting through that, you know, first like two years with him. And did you have support? I did. I have, uh, my husband's a police officer, so he works really crazy shifts and different schedules. Um, and I had my mom and my dad, but you know, you have, when you get diagnosed, you have this huge support group now, like social media, everybody, you know, wants to rally around you and help you, which they really do. But when it comes down to like the everyday things that need done, like scrubbing your house or doing your laundry or getting to appointments or getting your kids to appointments, like those are the things that I don't think people really realize, even like grocery shopping, stuff like that. Um, you're kind of left to do on your own still, no matter how much help I think that you do have. Did people say, well, what can I do to help? <laughs> was that helpful for you? Like what, what should someone say to a patient going through cancer treatment? I think saying, what can I do to help? But following through with it. I, even now, um, I actually think it's harder now because people see me and they assume that I'm healthy um, because I have my hair and 
Um, I get around and I try not to let those, those bad days keep me down for too long. So people don't see those things now. Um, especially like the hair thing, people just assume that when you have hair, you're not going through chemotherapy and you're not in treatment, which I mean, is there's so many new chemotherapy drugs out right now that women are keeping their hair. So they just assume that you're okay. So they stop asking if there's anything that they can do. Um, but again, when I was first diagnosed too, and I was, you know, I looked like that typical cancer patient, people would say, let me know if you need anything. Is there anything I could do? And then they would never follow through with it. Sometimes I tell my patients, I say, if someone asks you, you know, what can they do to help say, I need dinner on Thursday. Yeah. Yep. You know, giving, I think people do want to help, but they don't know how. So giving them concrete tasks, I think is probably may feel imposing, but I think it's actually a good thing for others. Yeah. And that was one thing that was really hard for me to do, especially because I had, um, when I was diagnosed, I was running my own nonprofit that worked in the NICU. So I was always helping other people. I was never the one that, you know, was on the receiving end of those things. So specifically telling people what needed done just wasn't, it didn't really work for me. And I almost wanted people to kind of like assume, well, this is what she would need. Um, but when I had my double mastectomy, I had it a couple years after I was diagnosed and, um, I joined a website. There was like a, a website where you could say, okay, Monday I need a meal and Tuesday morning I need someone to come and clean my house. Thursday, the garbage needs taken out. So I kind of did by that point learn that that was the way to go was to be really specific with people about your needs. Do you happen to know the name of that website? It was called Lotsa, L-O-T-S-A, helpinghands.com. All right. I wonder if it's still available. I'll have to link to that because I think that's a great resource. Yeah. And there's Meal Train too, uh, where people can sign up for meals, but, um, that lots of helping hands was great because it wasn't just for meals. You could put anything up on there. And can you talk a little bit about your experience in going through this at a young age? One thing I've always kind of learned how to do was make connections and find support. In 2013, it wasn't that long ago, but social media definitely wasn't what it is today. Um, so within that first year of me being diagnosed, I had started making connections online, um, through Instagram and YouTube and Facebook and just connecting, um, with other women. And I actually went on to create a, uh, Facebook group with a couple friends who were also diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer under the age of 40. So creating that space was huge for us. Because we hadn't really had um, a voice being young and being metastatic. So that created a real community that allowed us to express things that, you know, sometimes older women may not understand. We just have unique needs um, from fertility issues to having young kids, um, 
to still working like we we just have a lot of unique needs did that kind of parlay into your mommy bucket list social media Uh, no that was actually one of right after I was diagnosed that was one of the first things that I decided to do because they had told me that uh, my prognosis was about 18 to 24 months and again with the twins being four and my son being three I just thought to myself, I still have so much that I need to experience with them. And there's still so much that I need to see and do. And this was kind of even before people started, you know, doing bucket lists on social media. And I was like, I'm just going to create this list. And I called it the mummy bucket list. But it was really just, it's a list of things that I want to do as a mom. I want to see them get an A on a paper. I want to see them do a science fair project. I want to take them to Disney. Um, I want to take them to Washington, D.C. So it was just all these kind of different things. And the longer that I'm here, the list kind of expands because they're older and I'll know I'll get to experience more. So, you know, um, Hopefully one day I can see them go to the prom or see them get married. So it's always kind of evolving and growing. That's wonderful. Do you actually write down the things you want to do? Yeah, I have it on my blog and I kind of, I, I keep track of it on my blog and I, every couple months I'll go on and mark things off that I've done. Um, and then on my Instagram account is kind of where I, keep track of everything, you know, through photos and keep everybody updated with it. And how do your kids cope with this? Do they know that you have metastatic breast cancer? Since they were so young when I was diagnosed, we basically just kept it super simple for their age. And we just said, um, mommy has cancer. It's just these bad cells in her body. And She has to get this medicine and it's going to help take away some of that cancer. But here are the changes that are going to be happening as a result of that. Because I was such an active mom, Mm -hmm. I felt like I owed them an explanation of why I wasn't going to be as active anymore, why my hair was going to be falling out, why, you know, people were going to be coming over and watching them much more. So we kept it very, very simple. And I'll actually never forget the first year that the girls were in in kindergarten and it was Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And my daughter was drawing a picture and she actually wrote breast cancer rocks, which of course it doesn't rock. But, you know, to a six-year-old, all she had saw at the time and all that she knew was all the fun stuff that we did because mommy had breast cancer. And as they get older, um, I have kind of just tailored the conversation every so often to fit where they're at. Uh, so they know that they don't specifically know what metastatic means, but they know that mommy has cancer, that's not going away, that she has to stay in treatment, and we need to keep her there, you know, in treatment as long as we can. I've heard this from other women, young women who have children who are very active and they get diagnosed and, you know, they can't run around with them anymore and they kind of have to spend more time sitting on the couch. And, and that can be really hard for children. 
Any advice? I think giving yourself grace in those situations um, is probably one of the best things to do. Um, it's just a moment in time. It's it's not going to be there forever. And I had to keep telling myself, like, they're not going to remember this. They're, they're not going to remember this time. I remember one time I was so sick and I slept all day on the couch and my son ate. <laughs> not even kidding you. My son, because I was sleeping, so I didn't feed him lunch. He ate gummy bears and lollipops. He probably thought it was the best lunch ever. (laughs) And so my husband came home and was like, oh, hey, buddy, you know, what'd you do today? What'd you have for lunch? And he was like, I ate gummy bears and lollipops all day. (laughs) (laughs) So I think just in those those times, like, I just had to think, like, he is not going to remember that. I just have to give myself some grace. Like, I need... The top priority is for me to be healthy um, and feeling good. And if that means that, you know, I stay in bed for two days and we have to miss a couple things, that's just what has to happen. That's so important. You can't be the best mom that you can be and the best person that you can be if you don't take care of yourself first. Right, right. Let's go back. So you were, you mentioned that you had had a mastectomy, but a couple of years later, can you kind of walk us through that yeah there's actually a lot of controversy over metastatic patients getting uh double mastectomy which i wasn't even aware of when i was first diagnosed um, i saw the breast surgeon and then she said you know we do chemo first so you're going to go see an oncologist and we kind of me and my oncologist at the time kept goals So a goal was to finish treatment. Um, And then once we finished treatment, the next step was to do some radiation to help with bone pain. Then the next step was to go ahead and do a double mastectomy. So when I went back to go see the breast surgeon, um, she basically just told me that uh, there was no point for me having a double mastectomy, that they only do one to stop progression of the disease. I was already progressed. And I was really offended by it because I, again, it was like one of those goals. At the time, it was just all about being a goal. And I, and I didn't even do any research on it at the time. I just knew that my oncologist said that this was what was best for me and that I needed to have it done. So after she had told me no, I went and I did a ton of research on it and found out that in my case, there had been case studies that that matched my exact diagnosis. And um, this particular study had showed that women can live up to two years longer after having had the double mastectomy um, and being metastatic. So... I took it to another surgeon and that surgeon said the same thing. Like, you know, you're not doing this We're we can't, we're, we're not going to do this at all. This isn't happening. Um, she had called me at home and she had asked me why I'm not requesting surgery to have my liver out because my liver was covered in cancer. So why would I want to remove healthy breasts if, I wasn't asking to have my liver removed Mm -hmm. and I just felt like I just wasn't being heard. No one was, I, I was like up against this wall. 
So I had found another surgeon and I kind of said to myself, okay, if this dude tells me no to, then I'm just done. I'm not, I, I don't even have any more energy to deal with it because I had been going through, um, surgeons over like an eight month span. Mm -hmm. So I finally found this surgeon and he was like, you know, I agree with all of the research, you know, that's been going on so far. And there's new, new research studies that they're putting out this year. And he just said that he thought that it would be best for me. So we went ahead and I actually had the double mastectomy on my 32nd birthday. That's a birthday present. Yeah. <laughs> and did you do reconstruction? I did not. I chose to stay flat. Can you talk about how, if it, if it has affected your body image at all? I thought that I was pretty confident leading up to it that it wouldn't affect my body image. Um, and my husband was okay with my decision. You know, he just said, I just want you here. It, do- I, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters as long as you're here. And I knew that if I chose immediate reconstruction, um, that the surgery would have been longer, my recovery time would have been longer. And it just wasn't, for me, it wasn't worth it at the time with the kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did pretty good image wise for like the first year. Uh, It didn't really bother me. But then into my second year is when I started to really kind of um, second guess myself and I had put on a lot of weight after surgery. I just wasn't sure if it was something that um, I should have chose to stay flat. But as time has went on from that, I really just, I mean, I'm not here to impress anybody my husband loves me. Um, he doesn't care about it. It doesn't affect us sexually. So I'm okay with staying flat. I do wear prosthetics because I have put on so much weight that I feel like it kind of, um, it, it evens me out. (laughs) So my belly doesn't look so big, Mm -hmm. but, um, I just kind of, The prosthetics make me feel comfortable when I'm out in public, but typically, um, like around home and stuff, like I don't even wear anything. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about, you know, being diagnosed at a young age, the first thing that kind of people say as well, is it genetically linked? What was your experience with that? That was the first thing that had popped into everybody's head with me as well, um, because I was... um, again, metastatic at diagnosis. So um, the oncologist figured that I probably had had breast cancer for about two years, which would have put me right after my son's birth. And um, they wanted to get me checked for BRCA1 and 2. Even though I had no family history of breast cancer, I did have a family history of cancer in general. My mom actually had thyroid cancer at 27. And my grandma died from brain cancer. So uh, when BRCA1 and 2 came back negative, my genetic counselor said, listen, I have this other test that I want to run. However, um, it's not covered by insurance and it's really expensive. But I just feel really strongly about having this test ran. So we agreed to it. 
it was to check for a P53 genetic mutation, which is Lee Fraumini syndrome. And it actually came back positive um, for the genetic mutation for Lee Fraumini syndrome, which is a very rare mutation. And typically, uh, it runs in families. So we had my mom and my dad tested, but they were both negative. So that means that I was de novo. Mm-hmm. And then we had all three of my kids tested. And thankfully, all three of them tested negative as well. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. No, they were tested. It's interesting because they were tested at a young age, you know, before they were 18. Were there any like ethical? Did you have to give consent? Yeah, we actually had to go to our children's hospital genetic department to have them tested. Um, and it was voluntary on our behalf. So again, we had to pay the test was $7,000. So we had to pay $7,000 times, well, essentially four. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though I tested positive, they it didn't, that didn't even matter. Um, But it was, uh, it's a very personal decision, I think, to have genetic testing done or not. Um, Especially for the kids, me, I wanted to know, I wanted to know, like what else I would be dealing with because the P53 mutation increases your risk for numerous types of cancers, Mm -hmm. um, not just breast. So I just, I'm a planner. I wanted to be able to plan anything that was going to be happening, but I have friends who choose not to test themselves or their kids, which is totally fine. It's a very individual and personal decision. And I think there's some things that knowing you can do some about, something about, and then there are other genetic mutations where you can know you're at risk, but there's nothing you can actually do about it. Right, right. So even with the Lee Fraumini syndrome, um, for instance, there is um, colon cancer, ovarian cancer, lymphoma, leukemia, sarcomas, melanomas like those are kind of like the top cancers that you get so i have to undergo screening every year Um, i get brain mris i get colonoscopies i've had to have an oophorectomy so i have to take like all these steps just to try to make sure that you know nothing is developing anywhere else now you mentioned you had an oophorectomy both of your ovaries were removed Yes, I just had that last year. And I, they actually found cancer through my fallopian tubes. So it's a good thing they were removed. Yes. And it was breast cancer that had gone to the fallopian tubes or it was ovarian or fallopian tube cancer? It was ovarian, yeah. They said it was like pre-ovarian cancer. So it would have developed into um, a secondary cancer. And I've had like multiple... Um, precancerous polyps like large polyps removed from my colon already too i can imagine the anxiety every time you go for one of these extra tests or scans yeah (laughs) or even a pain yeah Yeah. got a pain i'm like oh if it's there for two weeks it's cancer (laughs) that's you know you every yeah every time it was probably a normal pain or you bumped something but cancer is the first thing in your head when you had the ovaries removed that put you into menopause. Can you talk about that experience? 
I had already, um, I had like low ovarian function just from uh, chemotherapy, but I still had had enough. Um, I think the the biggest thing that no one tells you about when you um, have your ovaries removed is the weight gain that you're going to put on. I mean, I've put on about 30 pounds since then without changing my eating habit without, I mean, I have even, I've been trying to lose weight um, and nothing is really working, you know, because I don't have, I can't, and I can't go on hormones. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think the number one thing that nobody really tells you about I had already kind of dealt with the night sweats just from, you know, like I said, the low ovarian function. That doesn't bother me too bad, but the, the weight gain really did. And there's a lot of these kind of hidden side effects that no one talks about until they actually happen to you. Yeah. And you've mentioned previously to me that you've raised a lot of money for breast cancer research. Yes. So... Uh, The first year that I was diagnosed, one of the ways that I kind of, anytime something bad has happened, I've always tried to turn it around to help other people. So uh, the first year I was diagnosed, one of the things on my bucket list to do was to have a lemonade stand with my kids. So that October, we decided to have lemonade stands around town, and we donated all the money to breast cancer research, specifically for metastatic breast cancer. And every year, the lemonade stand just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and we raised, um, over the past six years, about $80,000 for not only metastatic breast cancer research, but we also gave some money to local breast cancer organizations um, and also like some cancer centers as well. That's incredible. That's a lot of money. Yeah. (laughs) And do you actually make the lemonade and go old school with that? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, it was just too hard with the little ones. I will say uh, every now and again, I did cut up some lemons though. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's great. And I think that's probably really fun for them just doing it with you and being part of it. Oh, they, they absolutely loved it. I took a year off in 2016 so I could recover from um, the mastectomy and all they kept asking that year was like, are we doing lemonade stands? Are we doing lemonade stands? So we're to the point now where we do one once a year at our high school and the kids always ask if they can invite a ton of friends. So, you know, we'll be standing outside just selling lemonade for 50 cents and, um, I'll have like a whole group of all these little girls running around me like and they just want to help out and they think it's so much fun. So the those kind of things are like the treasured memories that that I just know that they'll remember forever. Of course, and it's something that they're going to remember doing with you. Yeah. I've seen on Instagram that you do like your de- decals or like the Tumblers. Oh, the tumblers. Yes. Out of curiosity, should talk about that. Sure. So, um, being creative was always uh, like a therapy for me. And after the double mastectomy, I needed to do something to get my arms moving. 
So I actually started hand lettering and painting and doing watercolors and everything's just kind of evolved from there to the point that now I make um, like these glitter tumblers and I can even use my own hand lettering to decal on the cups. And I also sell shirts and all of the shirts are all my hand lettering decals. They're all made by me and it allows me to have some money, you know, to do some fun things with the kids. And it really makes me feel like I am doing something to not only contribute to my family, but my mental health as well. And I, of course, also just the physical, you know, especially after getting abraxine and neuropathy and all of that, that probably is a big help as well. Yes, definitely. So I'd like to end with just a few questions. Was there any pet peeve that you experienced during this whole process? I think that my my biggest pet peeve is just people assuming that there is nothing wrong with me because I do not look like a typical cancer patient. I, I've even had people get in fights with me um, when I try to use my handicap parking spot, like on days that maybe my hips just giving out and mm -hmm. I want to park in the handicap parking spot and someone is always standing there to tell me that I shouldn't be parking there. It's amazing what people feel the need to comment on. Yes. Yep. And if you could give kind of advice to someone who was newly diagnosed, who was in their late 20s, early 30s with a family, what would you say? Uh, I think I would say to um, a newly diagnosed mom, just, again, give yourself that grace. This is just a moment in time. Um, a moment in time that if your kids are younger, they will likely not remember, but even if they do remember it, 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 the whole thing has made my kids have such empathy for other people that are hurting and they care so much more for people that are suffering now. It, it has that ability to just kind of, um, bring everything full circle. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think you have to turn this into, you know, some positive, And I think that that's a really good way of looking at it. Yeah. Is there anything that surprised you? I think the people that come out to help, that's one thing that's always been very surprising. Um, there were some relationships that um, I had closed doors on. And when I was diagnosed, honestly, uh, those are the people that were some of the first ones to step up that said, what can I do with you or do for you? And I mended those relationships and those friendships. And I'm so thankful that I did do that and that I had the opportunity to do that with them. Were there any friendships that ended? Yes, a lot have. It's kind of like a double-edged sword. So you gain all of these amazing people into your life, and then you need to figure out why they're there. So some people are there for a season, um, and some people are there for the long haul. And 
it was really hard at first to figure out those people that were just there for a season um, when they did walk off coping with that. Because I, when I was first diagnosed, wanted to let everybody in because I'm like, oh, I'm going to die. So I need all of these people to be around me so then they can tell my kids stories. So I was letting all of these people into my life. And within six months, they were all gone. So it was really hard then for my kids who were like, well, where's so-and-so? When are we going to, you know, go do this? Or why doesn't this person come around anymore? So I'm more selective now of who we let closely into our lives. Um, but still, you know, if, if someone wants to help out or be involved, you know, we still allow people to do that. And that's a nice compromise. Yeah. Yeah. Right, well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I really appreciate this. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Kate. If you want to learn more about her experience, please visit her website at themommybucketlist.com as well as follow her on Instagram at mrskatecrawford. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I have just one favor to ask. If you are loving the show and learning as much as I am from these amazing women, please take a minute to leave a rating and review on iTunes as that is the best way to grow the show. I'm so excited to continue to share more cancer stories with you over the coming weeks and months. You can head on over to my Instagram and Twitter pages at Dr. Japlinski for more podcasts and cancer news and updates, as well as www.interludecancerstories.com for today's show notes. Thank you again for all of your support thus far, and I'll be back next week with another great guest.